Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending uh, March 27th. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on the podcast, you'll hear about my shitty birthday, uh, which is actually today, the day that we're recording this anyway, the 27th of March, and it's going to be spent alone. Oh, to be fair, there's many more hours for it to get more shit. Sure. <laughs> Could become uh, worse. Also, we uh, chatted to Simone Boldy and she reviewed the film The Third Man and also got to chat to Ricky Lee Erickson about the orca sightings in Port Phillip Bay. Yeah, exciting. Uh, we also spoke to academic and journalist Margaret Simons about the mess that is Australia's food bowl. Her new call essay is Crimea River, the tragedy of the Murray-Darling Basin. And we spoke to Victor Stephenson about his book, Fire Country, how Indigenous fire management could help save Australia. Triple R. Margaret Simons is the author of 13 books, winner of the 2015 Walkley Award for Social Equity Journalism, and has been honoured with several Quill Awards for journalistic excellence. Her new quarterly essay is Crimea River, The Tragedy of the Murray-Darling Basin, which sees the acclaimed journalist take a trip through Australia's food bowl. And the author and academic joins us on the line now. Margaret, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Now, with panic buying and Amid the pandemic, food security has become a major issue around the world. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the basin and its role in Australian life? Sure. Well, the basin is enormous. In fact, that's one of the challenges in understanding it, that it stretches so far. I think many Australians don't even really have an idea of what it is. But uh, the mouth of the Murray-Darling system is in South Australia near the town of Goolwa. Um, the headwaters of the Darling River, which is one of the main branches, stretch way up into the Queensland tropics and into the Darling Ranges. And then you've also got the, the Murray River itself, which, of course, rises in the mountains, and the Murrumbidgee River, the Macquarie River, you know, many, many tributaries. So it's many kilometres of river system, all of them draining in this um, shallow basin that covers a huge part of the Australian inland. And it's the food basin, as you said, but also fibre. So we're also talking fodder for um, for cattle, um, cotton, of course, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland. And cotton has spread further to the south in, in recent times as well, thanks to genetic engineering. Cotton can be grown in cooler climates these days. So it's responsible for a huge portion of our agriculture, uh, many indigenous nations, uh, many farming communities, um, a massively important area and largely dependent on irrigation. And can you give us a bit of a potted history of how politics has got its claws into into the basin? Yeah, well, water is inevitably political in a country that's as dry as Australia. Um, and the politics of water began before Federation. Um, there were early irrigation settlements, which were pioneered by Alfred Deakin, um, among others. Um, but at the time of Federation, the debates over who was actually going to control the water um, in the Murray-Darling Basin were some of the most heated, and indeed the whole process fell apart, or nearly fell apart a couple of times, um, over those heated debates. In those days, it was as much or more about um, navigation, the paddle steamers and their ability to go up and down the rivers, as it was about irrigation, because irrigation was in its infancy. But uh, long story short, the states continue to own and control the water. 
and we're still paying the price of that decision today because if you want to manage water in the Murray-Darling Basin, it means you have to get the cooperation and agreement of all of the governments, so Queensland, New South Wales, the ACT, Victoria... Um, and the federal government all have to be, and South Australia, all have to be able to agree, and that has proved it continues to be incredibly difficult. What are the major obstacles uh, for navigating politics in this area? Um, and when when was the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement established? Sure. Yes. Well, the um, the Water Act, which um, which allowed for the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement, was passed in two thousand and seven in the dying days of the Howard government. Um, and then the first part of the um, trying to get the states to sign over some of their powers um, to the Commonwealth uh, was in the early days of the Rudd government. Um, and the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement was legislated, and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan was legislated in 2012 in the last days of the Labor government. So the bulk of the implementation has fallen to the coalition government and there have been many, many problems with that implementation. There are problems with the plan, the way it's designed. There have been political compromises all the way along the route to try and get the jalopy on the road and these days that jalopy is in danger of falling apart. Mm. Well, critics, you're right, of the Basin have described water politics as having entered a post-truth world. What's meant by that? Right. Well, part of the political compromises has been that at various stages there's been some big departures from what the best available science suggested was needed. Now, having said that, I should say that our state of knowledge about the basin is imperfect. Um, We know how much rain falls there, for example, but a great deal of our knowledge of where that water goes is based on modelling, and sometimes the models don't match the facts. So those who talk about a post-truth world are attacking a number of different aspects in the way in which the assumptions underlying the plan um, are potentially manipulated or false. That is, the politics has been allowed to infect the science. Um, so one of the, this is a bit complex, but one of the main ways that uh, that phrase has been used has been about the so-called um, return flows issue. Bear with me, because this is a bit complicated. Mm. But let's suppose you're irrigating inefficiently. You know, you've got overhead sprinklers or you're flood irrigating. Some of the water will seep back into the watercourses or into the aquifers. Not all of it will be used by the plants. Now, one of the main pushes has been to irrigate more efficiently, to make better use of the water, to make sure that you're using only what the plants need to grow. Um, If you do that and do it well... Very little water, probably none in some cases, returns to the aquifers and the rivers. Now, the people who talk about the post-truth world, Professor Quentin Grafton, among others, of ANU, are saying that that difference isn't being counted in our models and that it may account for an enormous amount of water. And so while we think the plan is returning water to the environment, that might be either partly or even wholly cancelled out by the fact that there's fewer return flows. And at the moment, the plan takes no account of that, and that's what he means by it being in a post-truth world. Mm. We think we're returning water to the environment, and maybe we're not at all. And in preparing the essay, you travelled around the basin, Queensland and South Australia. What did you see up close? Well, I was travelling in the middle, in the teeth of the drought, of course, and there has since been some rain over large parts of the basin. Um, 
but I saw communities under stress everywhere. Nobody had water, um, or not much water. Um, but at the same time, a great deal of, um, of hatred, really, hatred and rivalry. Um, so you had upstream hating on downstream, state hating on state, crops hating on crops, um, different regions blaming other regions. And so you had this um, society of people, of river users, um, who were linked by the river course, and yet the information between them barely flowed at all. So people in St George, Queensland, for example, knew virtually nothing about what was happening in Mildura or in Renmark in South Australia. Um, and everybody, of course, pursuing their own interests very hard. There's also, uh, in, in terms of water management, it seemingly impenetrably flat language associated with it. What what effect did the sustainable diversion limit adjustment have on you? On me? Yes. <laughs> um, well, I the sustainable diversion adjustment mechanism is, um, oh, I'll explain it in a minute perhaps, but yes, it's an example, it's a very important concept but an example of the sort of almost impenetrable language of water management which I think is one of the reasons that most people sort of glaze over a bit talking about it um, and uh, one of the main projects which is important to that term is the Menindee Lakes um, on the Lower Darling and uh, I stood in the middle of the Menindee Lakes and, and yelled sustainable diversion adjustment mechanisms go <laughs> 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 living, living in the city and kind of along the east coast, sometimes it's really hard to get a grasp of how important this issue is. Do you think that there is a need to communicate this better to the cities, um, the importance of, of this issue? Uh, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, I mean, this is one important aspect of a wider problem, which is the disconnect between mm. country and city. Um, I mean, those of us who live in um, in the cities, and I include myself in this, um, you know, often are completely remote from the country on which our lives still depend. I mean, if you eat vegetables, if you drink milk, particularly almond milk, um, you're connected to the Murray-Darling Basin almost certainly if you wear cotton, which just about the whole of humanity does in one way or another. Um and yet we know very little about what's going on. Farmers are often demonised, the cotton industry in particular. Um, and th there's also this very mistaken notion in the city, I think, of rural Australia as being locked in some sort of conservative time warp. And uh, that is just so not true. It's such a dangerous misunderstanding. The pace of change in rural Australia over the last decade or so has outstripped anything we've seen in the city. Mm. And that's partly about mechanisation and technology, meaning that the rural communities shrink because um, work can be done with fewer hands. Uh, shrinkage in the number of farms, which means you know, more big corporate enterprises coming in. But also things like the end of the wheat board as the single desk for marketing Australian wheat and the death of um, state-based producer marketing boards, um, you know, enormous changes in the economics and the marketing of products. And most of this, um, city dwellers are completely unaware of. They think that, you know, can't see the overflow is still sort of riding on somewhere out there. <laughs> and, and what do you anticipate for the future of the basin? Because a lot of the people you speak to seem quite pessimistic about the past. There's 
one uh, quote. I do one. I do wonder what I have achieved in thirty years of work on this stuff. I doubt if even one fish has lived one extra hour in Menindee because of my work. Yeah, that's um, that's one point of view. Another point of view, and I should say that these two are not necessarily mutually exclusive, is that thanks to the plan, which has allowed the clawing back of water from irrigation, so that it can be given to the environment. As a result of that, I think it's. There's no doubt that there are some areas you can point to particular sites along the river which are in better conditions than they would have been without the plan. Mm. I, I don't think there's much doubt about that. If you look at the whole thing, um, you know, there's also many sites which are just terrible to look at where there's been enormous environmental damage and on the current settings it's hard to see how that can be addressed. So, you know, the plan is in one sense a wonder. It's tremendous that despite all the problems of Federation, despite all the competing interests, we actually have a plan which has clawed back water from the environment and that that's been a cooperative endeavour. But at the same time, at the moment, New South Wales is constantly threatening to pull out of the plan altogether and is failing to meet many of its obligations under the plan. Um, and that, you know, New South Wales is responsible for the biggest single area of the of the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, you had politicians at all levels make endless compromises to try and keep the whole thing together, and yet it's hard to say that that has resulted in cohesion. And there's a lot of litigation either happening or threatened. So I think there's a real risk that the whole thing will collapse. Um, and we have no other means of addressing this management problem. We have no other means of continuing to live together with this limited resource. Um, so there's room for both optimism and pessimism in that. And if you were designing Australia again, I think there's no doubt that you would give control of the water to the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, that creates the whole problem of top-down management. And that has been the story of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Some people would say it had to be that way. Um, but it's been imposed on rural Australia um, and the farmers I spoke to spend you know, huge parts of their lives driving sometimes hundreds of kilometres to attend meetings at which they're consulted and then sometimes ignored. That's how they feel anyway. Um, and there isn't that community ownership of the plan. So one of the things I suggest is that um, perhaps it could have been done differently with a more sort of bottom-up community consultation approach. Probably would have taken longer probably would have been harder, um, and maybe it wouldn't have worked, but maybe we would also have a sort of sense of ownership and that sort of base and wide understanding of the problems of other communities. But, well, I uh, th thank you for writing it. And the, the story, it's all captured in Crimea River, the tragedy of the Murray-Darling Basin. It's out now through Black Ink. And uh, we've been speaking with author and academic Margaret Simons. Thanks so much, Margaret. A pleasure. Triple R. It's time to talk movies with isolated cinephile Simone Ubaldi. Hi, Simone. Good morning. How are you? Really well. What's what? What are you up to? <laughs> you know, <laughs> just sitting around my house in my pajamas, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the end of the world. <laughs> I've been dreading. I've been dreading that theme music all week. I've been like, oh, not now. It feels particularly bloody ominous right now. It feels really ominous right now. Mm. Not now, Neil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you're obviously um, not being able to go to the cinemas at the moment, are you, and watch films? 
No, in fact, uh, no one is able to go to cinemas at the moment and watch films because they have been um, the latest uh, commercial victim in the round of closures, necessarily. They've um, had to close their doors, so I know everyone's really hurting right now, but spare thought for all their owners, operators and staff that run out of Melbourne's amazing cinema houses that had to close their doors this week. Mm. But there's a silver Um, lining for cinema lovers, I suppose. Which is that we can sit home all day and watch movies. (laughs) That I, that's what I heard. I mean, Scott Morrison's directive bit the other night was fuzzy, but I heard, don't do Barre, stay home, watch <laughs> Barre. Yeah. Barre. Um, and what have you watched for us this week? What are you going to review? So I've been told uh, to go out and just find something to talk about that people can stream from home, which obviously includes, you know, billions and billions of titles. But the one that popped into my head, I decided to start off with something that's pretty easy to stream for free because uh, there's obviously a lot of people who are going to be counting their pennies uh, at the moment. It's this 1949 noir classic called The Third Man. Have any of you guys seen it? I watched it yesterday because out of total random, I, I bought it a few days ago. Uh, wow. In a in a boomer Blu-ray buying spree. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Can we talk about the fact that you're buying Blu-rays? That we don't have to. But... Oh, Simone, we've talked enough about this. We oh, sure. yeah. totally underrated. <laughs> Everybody, get on board. <laughs> oh, you've bought it in. Yeah. <laughs> so, would you like to have a stab at guessing why I picked this film, then, Dan? Oh, God. Um, I suppose because it's uh, the world when it is set. And, I, uh, you know, it's a, it's a post-war European uh, dystopian sort of setting. Uh, you've got Vienna in rubble and uh, you've got uh, – it's about – perhaps I don't want to give too much away, but an explo- exploiting, a, um, exploiting a terrible situation – Exploiting disaster, yeah. correct. That is why I picked this film, and I'm going to give everything away. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because people haven't seen Third Man by now, they should, and I don't think it detracts from the experience. Uh, it's set in post-World War II Vienna, an American called Holly Martins arrives in the city expecting to meet his college friend Harry Lyme, but discovers when he arrives that Harry Lyme is dead. Um, and there's a there's a kind of gathering cloud of weird characters who reveal to Holly pretty quickly the circumstances of Harry Lyme's death are really suspicious. So via Harry's ex-girlfriend, Anna, Holly starts to kind of unpick how it is that his friend actually dies, involving uh, this titular third man, and eventually finds out that uh, not only was Harry involved in some fairly heinous, uh, exploitative post-war racketeering, but also that he's not dead. Harry Lund's not dead. Oh. Harry Lund's not dead, which leads to one of um, cinemas. It's, it's one of the most famous entrances of a character in cinema when Orson Welles playing uh, Harry Lyme appears flickering out of the shadows in nighttime Vienna one hour into the film. So... The most famous role of Orson Welles' career, probably, as an actor, um, and certainly a stunning entrance that kind of gets you every time, but really barely actually appears in the film. It's mostly people talking about Harry Lyme rather than Harry Lyme having actual screen time. Um, The third man, for people who love it, they love it because it's this classic noir 
Vienna, which was shot there, the film shot on location in Vienna after the war, is this extraordinary decaying world. Um, these kind of run between these beautiful Baroque apartments and like, you know, these beautiful ornate stone buildings that have been reduced to absolute rubble. Lots of it is shot in the dark. It seems constantly covered in rain uh, and wetness and the lighting is this beautiful kind of chiaroscuro expressionistic um, uh, sharpness. And there are some really uh, memorable sequences in the film, not least of which is when uh, Harry Lyme, being hunted by the police, runs through the cells of Vienna like a big dirty rat. He is. Mm. And it's written by, well, a spy. Graham Greene. Yeah. Yeah. Who recruited to MI6. Yeah, 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 that's right. Graham Greene, one of the greatest writers uh, of the 20th century who travelled the world uh, quite a bit, uh, including spending time uh, in Vienna and was recruited by by his sister, I read, into MI6, but just Hmm. purely because he was this, you know, hot-footing world traveller. because clearly they had disasters, but they didn't have corona. Uh, yeah, and look, the reason why The Third Man, I think, the, the reason why most critics see The Third Man as being such a successful um, and lasting classic is not because there was an auteur behind the camera. The guy, Carol Reed, who made it, is probably best known for all of the musical, other than this, but because everyone who is in the film and everyone who brings something to the film is amazing from the cinematographer to the direction to all the performances um, to this amazing zither, kind of weird guitar sounding, um, like jaunty, cold soundtrack uh, that's provided by a guy called Anton Karras. For me, you know, I don't love noir generally and um, even though... I have, I frequently subject myself to black and white cinema. I'm also like, why are these people acting like heads on popsicle sticks? Because I love a bit of naturalism. But there is uh, this really classic, but but Orson Welles is just undeniably amazing and charismatic in this film. And there is a very famous scene where he uh, kind of confronts his mate Holly, who's been hunting for him. Uh, on a Ferris wheel and talks about, he gestures to the people kind of down below and says, they're all just dots moving around. Would you really care if one of them disappeared? And that's why I'm talking about this film this week. Oh, I love it. There's that line, because yeah. I've seen it pop up a little bit lately, yeah, f- uh, just in terms of his dystopian outlook. Um, uh, yeah. Th- th- there was a line which was memorable. It said, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love in 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> Is that I from that movie? Yeah. Huh. Well, I, can, I can tell you a couple of things. First of all, Orson Welles added that line. Wow. Um, but also he, he cribbed it from someone else. The source is a bit unclear, but he sort of acknowledged it by opening by saying, you know what the fellow said. Also, after the film came out, Switzerland was like, hey, when the Borgias were running Italy, we actually had the fiercest military in all of Europe. We weren't these peace-loving doctors that you're familiar mm. with. And also, we didn't invent the cuckoo clock that came from Germany. <laughs> <laughs> I love Such it. a good line. Such yeah. a good line. Um, um, yeah, go on. No, I was, I was just going to say the, the, the Blu-ray 
it's it's got t- you know this is what you don't get from streaming. Is as it well. director's cut? There's, 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 there's the audio <laughs> country. There's a tour of Vienna oh in there as God. well that takes you to places where the film was shot. Anyway, wow, that's useful in our housebound time. I think so, but no one's with me. Who's the idiot now, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Um, well, is is this might this be a theme? Could might you review a, a classic for us ongoing or? What do you reckon? I, I'm going to be attempting to talk about films that are relatively easily accessible that speak to something about our times. Yeah, that's my that's my ambition. Let's see how we go. Cool. Well, that's the Third Man by Carl Reed, uh, and we've been speaking with Simone Baldi. Thanks, Simone. Good luck. Stay safe. Cheers. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. In his 27 years working to care for country, Indigenous land management expert Victor Stephenson has aimed to prevent major bushfires through Indigenous fire management practices. He tells his story in the new book Fire Country, how Indigenous land management could help save Australia, and the author delves into the landscape and the environmental challenges with a call to revive Indigenous fire practices. And the author joins us now. Victor, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, can you tell us about your interest in fire, when it started, and uh, how you came to use your powers for good? <laughs> uh, well, it started from a young age, um, being interested in culture, you know, and uh, Aboriginal knowledge because of my mother's links and my own personal links, yeah. And um, I, I kept going with that. Um, and um, as a young, as a teenager, I um, kept searching for neighbouring clan groups, and because uh, a lot of our my mother's family couldn't tell me much, so I've met two important mentors in my life, and from a young age, and lived with them for a long time. And fire became just a part of um, the work we were doing because we needed to look after the country, and so it was just um, something that stood out and chose us to take on. And it was something that the elders wanted to do. It was their main aspiration, and so we, you know, wanted to make it happen, and um, that's what what we did. Mm, your first job managing fire sounds like a scene from Mad Max. <laughs> yeah, well, it was different times, you know. <laughs> People were different, and times were different, and you know, Aboriginal fire knowledge wasn't talked about back then. Yeah, and um, you know, there was some had some fun times with national parks in them times, and. Um, I only wish that it was, um, you know, that it went a lot more better and people um, took advice and supported the aspirations a lot more back then. But we're here now in this day and age and um, in this time and things are really improving and we see a lot of good relationships and there's a lot of positive um, um, support for learning from uh, Indigenous fire management and and um, I think the majority of the communities in Australia really want to see, um, you know, influence from that um, supporting our fire management into the future. Mm, and you, you look at the first, uh, the most recent bushfire season, and how do you view what you, this summer um, and how it was dealt with and how you might like to see it change? Well, you know, it's really devastating to see what we saw this summer and, you know, and... But from that, you know, um, devastation, it was, it was real shame to see so much people just suddenly interested in Indigenous fire management. But at the end of the day, I think that was a good thing. And I just only hope that good comes from this. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, and you know what I've seen is a lot of good coming from the community, um, from all walks of life of community, from partialists to Aboriginal communities to just private landholders and just your general society of Australia are really supportive around this and I've seen a huge change in this country um, towards the attitude but it's just the powers that be now um, and are they going to support this type of change and are they going to support regions and communities across the country to um, get this happening in their own, own areas and you know or are they are they going to ignore it once again and just put steroids on the current systems that they have. So still don't know yet, you know, what what the powers that be are really going to do. For those that don't know, Victor, um, are you able to talk us through kind of some of the key aspects of um, Indigenous fire management and how that differs from what we're doing now? Well, it's a whole connection to the country. It's a whole other relationship and it's a whole other way of looking at the land. I mean, when you're looking at Indigenous fire management, you're, you're looking at the country in a whole different way of seeing the trees and the different country and understanding all these different values within the different ecosystems and how we burn them at different times and how some of them we don't burn and um, understanding that we need to be connected to landscapes all the time. We're not, we can't just be doing fire for two weeks of one year and, you know, and then trying to shove in as much country you know, as a quota into that time frame or have lock-off dates and that are made from, um, you know, that, that people put in and, and it's not read from landscapes. And it really has um, come to the point where um, we've really disconnected ourselves from country a lot and people are really unaware of reading the land the way Aboriginal people did and how we've managed that land for thousands of years. And it is a whole turning point um, for humanity to be able to um, do this. Um, we're looking at also the skills in our society. People aren't skilled to see the land this way and people aren't skilled to burn the country this way. And, you know, everyone's, you know, skilled in fighting fires and um, applying fire that way. And there's a whole another level of knowledge and layers of, of information that um, people are missing completely. And, and that needs to be shared. And not only just with the fire, but it links to so many other benefits too in society and education. And there's a wealth of knowledge that's been deprived from this country. And um, and what's really happening is that, um, you know, we're making that available and people have, are having those experiences with that when they go to workshops. And, and that's why um, it's doing so well. You talk in the book um, about the. There's a chapter in the book called "The Obstacle of Man," um, and you talk about how you went to a uh, a fire convention, so to speak, um, yeah, and yeah. yeah, how you you discovered that you know the fire industry is probably worth a bit of money. Can you talk to us, uh, yeah, a bit about you know what happened at that exhibition and and how you came to what you discovered? Yeah, well. Firstly, the firefighting industry, we need that firefighter, you know, that industry. And obvious, it's really obvious to see that we need to be putting, you know, controlling wildfires and we need that equipment and we need those personnel being firefighters. But that was all that's there. And that's the only one side of the story. And when I went to, um, the, you know, like a national, you know, with international sort of people coming as well, like a fire conference, 
you know, there was just a whole big hall and room full with stalls, and there was so much of it, and, you know, there was nothing there looking after the land, nothing there in terms of proactive. Everything was military and, um, you know, fighting fires, and there was, like, it's a big industry. And let's not, um, we can't deny that it's a massive industry. And, um, you know, there's a lot of... um, product being sold around firefighting and like I said we need that equipment but I think it's just one-sided and we need to be looking at the proactive side of it as well and what's the point of always fighting fires and being scared of fires and we're selling that and marketing that and we're not even doing anything to educate um, looking after the land to prevent a lot of these problems and to educate people um, about fire and to connect them with landscapes to help them with trauma um, and problems that they would have had from wildfires in the past. And I just feel that we're missing a whole important side of it that is probably the main side, um, rather than um, just always firefighting. And mm. walking around there, it was people trying to sell me stuff, you know. They're trying to sell me a helmet and <laughs> and the next fireproof, you know, the best stuff to wear on country. And, you know, I don't need that stuff, you know. Um, and, you know, all that we, the firefighters do, um, yeah, it's just a real shame that, you know, when I was standing there and after all my time growing up and and also living with the elders and, you know, um, if they saw me, if they would have saw that, they would have just been blown away. It's a whole other world mm. compared to what how we see the landscape and how we connect to the land. and. Yeah, it's just um, mind-blowing. You work with Fire Sticks Alliance and run programs across Australia teaching cultural fire management. What? Mm. How many fires have you lit? And, and I mean, that's a very trivial question, but... Uh, no, I can't tell you that. Would it, would it be... I mean, it must be in the tens of thousands, but what, what goes on in these, in these um, programs and, and how do you play with uh, concepts of fire? Well, the fire is the only way you learn and... That's why the way I learned is practical. The way the elders taught me was was lighting the fires and going out on country and making it happen. And that's the indigenous um, teaching methodology, and that's applying fire the indigenous way. And if we're going to to show and demonstrate indigenous fire, and uh, we need to be able to do that, and with no interference. And we can't have someone say, "Well, yeah, you know, you can." Go and do indigenous fire, but you got to burn like this and burn like this and have this, and all of a sudden it's not an indigenous fire regime anymore. And so um, I always ensure that we're out on country is the first step, so that people are learning firsthand, um, learning from the country, and learning how to read landscapes. And then when we say what the fire is going to do, and then it does that, and we light it, and it behaves the way it's supposed to, it goes out where it's supposed to. Well, then that's proof in the pudding, and that's the land showing you, and that's how we teach, is involving the land into the conversation. And when people go on those workshops, they have an experience, and they see this, and they understand it. And, you know, you get, like, farmers and, you know, old fellows, 80-year-old come to me and go, oh, you know, I've never seen it that way before, and I've never knew anything like this, and I'm third generation who've been on the land. Mm. And it's a whole other experience. And that's the thing. It's more than just fire. And when we, when people experience that, they experience a connectedness. They start to reflect on their own actions to landscapes and maybe what they've done to the country has been the wrong way or they understand how they can work with people. They understand Aboriginal culture. 
Um, they have a respect for the knowledge. Uh, it's, a, it's a really amazing thing. And I think that's what keeps me going, you know. It's not lighting the fires. That's probably a pyromaniac <laughs> lighting fires. But the main thing for me is, is seeing people change. And um, I think I get a kick out of that, you know, where you get people who are totally, um, you know, have no idea and might have opinions that are quite scornful or um, quite harsh. But in the end, I just, you know, you see them change and you see them understand. And, and I think everyone should be having that experience on landscapes. Well, a dollar from every copy sold is donated to Firesticks Alliance. Um, the book, yeah. the book is how Indigenous fire management could help save Australia, uh, Fire Country by Victor Stephenson. And uh, congratulations, Victor, and thanks for speaking with us. Yeah, thanks, and um, have a really good morning. Melbourne's own Triple R. Yes, for feature creatures, we are joined on the line by marine biologist Ricky Lee Erickson. How are you holding up? Good, thanks. How are you? Good. <laughs> yeah, winning. <laughs> Crazy times. But yes, I'm happy in my pyjamas at home, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, it must be tough for a marine biologist to uh, just have to stare forlornly out the window. Yeah, yeah. I've got a couple of microscopes and, and I've got some specimens at home to work on, but yeah, it's oh, cool. as good as being at the museum. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is this about orca sightings in Port Phillip Bay? Well, I saw on... Um, Field Naturalist Facebook group um, last month that they had been some orcas spotted um, just near Pope's Eye, which is a, a little man-made structure near the heads of Port Phillip Bay, and I thought that was really cool. And they are spotted occasionally in and around um, the heads, and, and sometimes even further up in north into the bay. Um, and I thought I'd—I don't think I've talked about them yet, so I thought that'd be cool to talk about mm. as well. And I don't think a lot of people realise that we do get quite a lot of uh, whales in the bay. Um, like humpback, southern rights, pygmy sperm whales and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's quite cool. Um, so each whale that they actually spot as well in the bay are identified um, using their... So each individual can be identified using their saddle patches and their eye patches and given a unique number and they're added to a killer whales Australia catalogue, which is really cool. So the um, orcas genus name is Orphanus, which means kingdom of the dead or belonging to orcas. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> kingdom of the dead. <laughs> so orcas is the god of the underworld, punisher of broken oaths in um, Roman mythology. So I think that's kind of... Back in the day, they used to think that they were much more deadly, I guess, to humans than they actually are. Um, the first written description was given by Pliny the Elder in 70 AD, um, orcas, the appearance of which no image can express other than enormous mass of savage flesh and teeth. Mm. So I think back, they used to be a lot more scary to us. Recently, we kind of understand that they're not very dangerous to humans. They have very specific prey, um, which does not inc include humans. Um, but they are, I think, quite ominous to look at. They're quite scary and they're so large. So males are up to nine metres in length, females are up to seven metres. Um, at birth, the calves weigh about 180 kilograms, and they're about 2.4 metres long. Mm. Um, they have a really diverse diet, not including humans, um, and individual populations specialise in different types of prey. So they eat fish, squid, um, seabirds and penguins, um, turtles, other marine mam mammals like seals and dolphins, um, and sometimes calves and adults of other whales. Um, 
Yeah, and like I said, wild killer whales are not a threat to humans. They're only, um, if you've seen blackfish, only handlers in marine parks seem to be threatened by orcas. And have you seen a killer whale tooth up close? I have, yeah. I have seen, um, we have some specimens at the museum, actually, which are really cool. What are they like? Um, They're pretty big, actually, Um, and I guess they're not sharp, like, um, as sharp as, say, like a great white shark of pointy but they've I guess they're so they've got so many and they're they're quite strong and yeah they're quite large but I don't know yeah you have to google I can't really explain it very well yeah yeah I'm looking at it right now yeah they're kind of stubby yeah they're they're stubby than you think um yeah they must be they've got a really strong bite um yeah which is cool and yeah so they're toothed whales um so whales broadly are defined into two groups which is baleen whales and then tooth whales. So um, orcas actually in the family Delphinidae, so they're technically dolphins um, and they're the largest of dolphin species. So that's quite interesting as well. And do they chew or does it go right in? Like I'm just picturing this turtle. Yeah, yeah. So they would chew. I'm not sure about turtles. Mm. Now, what they're, they must have a strategy for those because they are really good. I mean, I know sharks can penetrate um, the turtle shell a bit but yeah they're, they're pretty hard I think they're more fragile they're they're more susceptible I guess when they're younger the turtles so I'm not sure if they would be able to take on a really big massive green turtle but yeah I I don't like to harp on about like animals eating humans when you've said that they don't but you know when we talk about sharks mistaking humans for seals if orcas don't mistake us for their various prey does that mean they're more intelligent than your average shark like they they obviously have a, a fairly yeah big they're brain. really really smart they've got the second largest um brain out of all um mammal, all marine mammals um so they've, they've been known to be very very intelligent i think i mean i'm not sure if they if i know some sharks might mistake humans for seals um but i know that a lot of them wouldn't because sharks, I mean, if sharks are in the, so just out of a pure density, we're not in the water as much as we are with orcas. Yeah. They live off off the shore more, um, they're less coastal typically, whereas sharks, we are in the water with them quite a lot. And I think a lot of the time when there are shark bites, it's out of curiosity and, and I guess that's their way of testing us out yeah. um, rather than trying to, you know, actually eat for nourishment so uh, i'm not yeah i think they definitely are probably smarter than sharks for sure um they can they actually teach skills like languages each pod has their own dialect so they're different um they're called slightly different between groups of animals and they and they pass that down from mother to daughter and mother to son um pods are actually matriarchal so they have their mother has all of her descendants within the pod and then males um, travel to mate with other with other pods, so with females and other pods, which um, produces inbreeding like that. But yeah, so that's really cool. And they they learn, they teach each other how to hunt, um, mother to daughter and son. And um, they've actually been shown to well, to overcome sort of barriers through to stop orcas from fishing. So Alaskan orcas have learned to steal fish from long lines and overcome a variety of techniques designed to stop them, um, like 
decoys and unbaited lines and that sort of thing. And it's quite funny to hear the fishermen talk about it, saying it took them about an hour to figure it out, and then they were just kind of playing with us. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're really, really intelligent. If orcas are on the bay, are they at risk of coming on shore, or is that a, is that a small risk, or how big is that risk? Um, I think when whales come to shore, it's usually because they're sick or, um, or ill, um, except with the exception of mass strandings, which we don't really understand why that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, if they were sick or yeah unwell or perhaps dying, that would or died, they would get washed ashore. But yeah, other than that, not really. And we don't really have that many um, you know specimen records of of orcas, especially in the bay. Um, mostly, it's just sightings. And like I said, we they each have unique identifiers in terms of their patches, so they're they can be tracked um, in terms of their family groups and their ages, and that gives us um, more data on how long they live. We think that the females can live up to 90 years old in the wild, but on average 50 years, and um, males can live on average 29 years. Um, so, yeah, they're quite long-lived. And interestingly, um, they're one of the few animals like humans that go through a menopause. Um, so at around 58, females no longer reproduce and they can live for decades after after they've re- no longer able to breed, which is an interesting evolutionary point because typically if you're not breeding, you know, what, why are you still there? And that might be because of that, that role in um, teaching young and, and, and being sort of a group leader for the pod. Wow. I'm still hung up on this killer whale catalogue. Is that like uh, Ikea for sea creatures? Do you have one? <laughs> I, w- I mean, I wonder if it's online. That would be quite cool. And they all have their own names and everything. Mm. So, yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a little coffee table option in quarantine. <laughs> exactly. um, and can we, go and, can we go and see them? Are they, hanging, are they just hanging out? Do they hang out there when they're around or they kind of pass through? They kind of pass through, so they they really spend longer than like a few hours to a day in the same location. So it's it's very much a chance sort of sighting, and yeah, people usually typically would see them from boats, not from the shore. Mm. Um, but they do do the make so in I mean these whales we think would have come from um, the Southern Ocean, which is just south between Tasmania and Antarctica. Um, so they spend the summer down there where they hunt in the nutrient-rich waters, which are highly productive. Um, but then they come up to Australia along the east coast um, when during the winter, so where it's a bit warmer for them, and then they can rear their calves and everything up here. So, yeah, it's kind of a... I had a look on Atlas of Living Australia records, and, and they tend to... You can get sightings all year round, but they tend to be more common um, throughout summer or just either side of summer. And... Um, yeah, they they tend to be very, you know, you have to be quite lucky to spot them. So yeah. Well, Ricky Lee Erickson, fascinating. Thank you for your time as always, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yes, yeah, thank you. Triple R. I don't know if it's been mentioned yet, but it's Sarah Smith's birthday today. <laughs> <laughs> woo, woo, woo. Uh, a couple of people have sent a text in um, to our text line, 04-6698-1027, if you want to um, send us a text. Uh, you got a, another text this morning. What did you – One from text? you. Yes. What, what yeah. did it say? Oh, I have to get my phone. Hang on. It said – I was not prepared No, this no, question. I've sprung it on you. Yeah, you have. That's all right. Um, you tell me. I can tell you. It's, oh, hang on. I can. 
It said, morning, mate. Happy birthday. Cheers to the shittiest birthday you'll probably ever have. The end. The end. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Yeah, it, it did make me giggle. <laughs> I thought, yeah, it was, it was like a, I'm standing here in the studio just going, mm, is it, should I? No, like, bugger no. it. It's great. Yeah. yeah, no, very funny. Does it feel shitty? Oh, it just feels like what you know. In some ways, I always have this weird birthday anxiety, and in many ways, it's alleviated the anxiety I usually have around my birthday about whether I should do something or not do something, mm. and will it be good or will I be sad? It's kind of just very predictable because you know, I can't plan anything. Yeah, here's the thing: you're not alone in having shitty birthdays. No, you you saw me cry in the car on my own when I no one wanted to go to Luna Park with me. Yeah, three years ago. That's true. Um. And you know the the show that I would have been doing at the comedy festival, um, which I'll do hopefully I will do later on in the year at some stage. Who knows? The, that's the plan. Mm. Um, but the show was uh, is called What a Surprise, and a part of it was about um, you know how, was obviously talking about Kath organising me a surprise birthday party, yeah. and so I. You know, the first part of the show is I'll talk to the audience and ask the audience, who's had a shitty birthday? (laughs) Come on, who's had a shitty birthday? Because for me, I've had plenty of shit birthdays because I'm bad at organising them. Like, Mm. I'm the type of person who will... You know, be like, oh, should I? No, I don't need to do anything. I'm fine. Whatever. Mm. Yeah, just well, whatever, whatever happens. And then it'll be like three days out from my birthday, and then I'll send just in a text out, just saying, hey, um, yeah, it's my birthday. I'll be, I'll be at the pub Saturday, Arvo. This is me every year. Yeah, and this is why I'm always sad. See? This is the thing. Oh, whatever. Doesn't matter if you come. Yeah, just going to casually be hanging out. Just whatever. And then you're sitting at the pub and you've been there for 15 minutes and no one's there yet, and you want to die. Yeah, yeah, but also I'll I'll do the same thing, but send that text out to every single person that I know. <laughs> you know, and then it just means that I'll be at the pub Saturday afternoon, just getting lots of texts, just saying, <laughs> "Sorry, hey, couldn't sorry. make it. Yeah, sorry. sorry, couldn't make it." And then have a one. Yeah. Not going to be there. Let's catch up tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's have a lunch uh, soon. No, it's oh. today. <laughs> I'll t- I'll take you- I promise I'll take you out another time. I'm like, oh, no. Nah. And each one is just a tiny little dagger in your heart. So, oh, um, <laughs> it's so true. I did also, I did organise a um, my own birthday once at La Paqueta. Oh, La right. Yeah. How old? Oh mate, like twenty three or something. Yeah, I don't wow. think there's. I, and here's the thing: I may have overbooked and arrived first, and oh. I don't think there's anything sadder than a twenty three year old <laughs> at La Paqueta, like looking up at the waiter, going, "Oh no, I'm sure my friends will be here soon." <laughs> they it's are the saddest it's one thing. Of the, one of the few restaurants that are you can buy carafes of wine. It's oh. a carafe. Well, like, like a, a big well, jug of wine. Yeah, a big jug. Oh. Yeah. That's what you want. That's what yeah. I loved about it. <laughs> uh, I, um, I found out, because I would talk about that in, in the show, and I go, La Paqueta is where they put the la into disappointing birthdays. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a great joke. <laughs> but the places where I did the show, like I did it in Perth, I did it in Brisbane, and each time, no one knows La Paqueta. Yeah. Really? So it was every time I go, I can't wait to do this show in Melbourne because that joke is going to destroy Yeah, Yeah. Oh. It, everyone knows the unique sadness of having a birthday <laughs> at La <Paqueta. laughs> What about as they close? 
Because there's one in North Melbourne, I think, that's not there That's anymore. where I had it. Right. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of a cool like inner city the, uh, Yeah, uh, across from the markets. It was upstairs. and Yeah, anyway. Um, and then, like, later on, it was, had the waiters come up and I had to go, oh, yeah, no, nah, we don't need all those extra settings. <laughs> anyway, so what I would like to do. Will you be needing this? <laughs> no, you can, no, you can take it. Triple R. Uh. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website.